Hi, I'm Will Schwalbe, and this is But That's Another Story. Most book lovers have a go-to book or author when the weight of the world just gets a little too heavy to bear. I have one friend who always turns to P.G. Woodhouse. Another swears by the novelist Nancy Mitford. These days, as soon as she finishes Love in a Cold Climate, she starts on The Pursuit of Love. Then, like shampoo, it's rinse and repeat. For me, there's only one author who can always get me out of a funk when the world is just too aggravating. And that's Robert Benchley, who wrote for The New Yorker from the mid-1920s to the 1940s. He gave us immortal lines like, why don't you get out of that wet coat and into a dry martini? Among other things, Benchley was the patron saint of procrastination and procrastinators. A classic curmudgeon, he looked at the world with a bemused eye and found it and himself lacking. But Benchley is at his best when he's taking everyone around him to task for crimes like ice crunching, loud gum chewing, and talking obsessively about their vacations. I only wonder what quips he'd have for these times. But I must confess, I gained some comfort from knowing that things were bad then too. And if that's the case, maybe things haven't quite gone to hell in a handbasket. Maybe some things have been there all the while. And recently, I got to talking about what to read when you want to feel better about the world with today's guest. I'm Mike Pesca. I'm host of the Slate Daily Podcast, The Gist, and I am the author of, upon further review, the greatest what-ifs in sports history. Mike Pesca has always been good at talking and telling stories. And that's come in handy for his storied career in radio. As a producer at WNYC's On the Media, a correspondent for NPR, and now as host of The Gist, which is on episode, oh, well over a thousand by now. And even as a kid, it wasn't too hard to imagine that this is where he might end up. Friends of mine say, oh, I haven't talked to you in a while, but I feel like I hear from you because your show is the, the essence of you, the distillation of you. So that's a compliment. And it has never surprised anyone that this is what I'm doing. Like, I'm one of those people who no one ever said, really, you? They're like, yeah, okay. I didn't, we didn't know what podcasting was, but if someone had told me that there would be this thing called podcasting, I'd say, oh, yeah, Mike Pasco should do that. I was like other kids, only taller, smarter, and more vain. I <laughs> I grew up on Long Island. I was born in the uh, driveway of the house my parents still live in. And when I say driveway, there was a 1968 Plymouth Barracuda in the driveway, and it was in that front seat that I was born. My parents were both public school teachers, and I especially think my father, being a social studies teacher and being the kind of person who was really committed to current events, the news, fair-minded ingestion of right, left, all ways of thinking that couldn't have influenced me more. Another big influence was reading. My nose was always in a book, and I like Vonnegut, I like Catch-22. I just really loved magazine journalism, and I loved everything that P.J. O'Rourke did in Rolling Stone. And then I went back and kind of used him as a way into the National Lampoon, and I read everything in National Lampoon. And I read this book on the history of college humor magazines, and I had no idea that college humor magazines even existed. And all I ever wanted to do 
from that point on was to go to college and write for my humor magazine. So I was so influenced by this, by this idea and this institution. I got to college and I opened one copy of the humor magazine and I said, this sucks. And I never wrote for them. <laughs> Another very formative thing for me was I was in the Model United Nations, as a lot of people are. And I remember going to the library, and this is the days before all the information was really readily available, so you'd have to go through the card catalogs, but the huge books of periodicals. And this exposed me to things like Foreign Policy magazine, also McLean's, which is essentially the Canadian version of Time. And and, and certain magazines or periodicals kept popping up. So I would go to the library and read these magazines and periodicals that I only got to know because of Model United Nations. And one of the other big things Mike was into as a kid should come as little surprise. I always loved radio and listened to radio and would drive to my aunt's house in eastern Long Island or New Jersey and we'd listen to talk radio on the way there and back. But it didn't stop with just listening to the radio. A big Jets fan, he started calling in to local sports programs when he was around 10 years old. We tend to remember the thing we have a photograph of, even if we haven't looked at the photograph in 20 years. So I think I had one recording of one of my shows, and that's the one I very much remember. This recording I haven't heard in 20 years, but it was just the one that I heard more than once, or the one that I heard again, not as a participant. And it was me talking about Wesley Walker coming back from injury. He was a Jets receiver, and I offered my opinion that... Walker is uh, a couple weeks back from injury. I don't think that he and Todd have gotten, Richard Todd, have gotten their rhythm back. And the co-host of the show, who's the linebacker and member of the Jets, Greg Buttle, said, that's it, that's it, Mike from Oceanside. You've nailed it exactly. They don't have their rhythm back yet. So I felt pretty good. And, and I found out later that Greg Buttle, the uh, host of the show, is a member of the Jets, was a little pissed off that I would get, I'd call in every week and they'd made a big deal about it. They even had what's called a sounder, which is like, you know, some sound effect that Mike from Oceanside's calling. And he got really grumpy about it that I was taking a little bit of the spotlight. But his co-host, or maybe there was a station director who was paying attention to such things, knew that it was good radio. And Mike's love of the beleaguered football team didn't just lead him to radio. It also led him to approach the world in a somewhat counterintuitive way for a Jets fan, as an optimist. I told you I was a Jets fan, right? So that would lead you to think that, oh, he's only experienced heartache and regret. But he still came back to being a Jets fan. I think that was the crucible in which I was formed. I would say, I know my mother was certainly a pessimist and would tell me that her life philosophy is expect the worst. And this way, if it happens, you won't be surprised. But if something good happens, you'll appreciate it. I definitely thought that that was an insane philosophy, and I debate her on this. So I probably was an optimist if I had to put my finger on it. And as he stopped debating the merits of optimism versus pessimism with his mother, Mike started debating what he wanted to do with his life. When I was in college, I didn't know exactly what I'd do. I, I, I knew I liked politics, but there was something about journalism that seemed really dry and uncreative. And I was wrong about that, but two things. One, I think journalism was less creative then, but I also think that I didn't realize how much you could bring creativity to nonfiction. So I said to myself, well, I love the news and I love current events, but I just couldn't see myself dedicating myself to being a reporter where all 
you can do to express yourself or to show imagination. Like, what can you do? You're, you're pretty constrained by actual events. I remember having this thought and I had a couple friends who were journalists and they got jobs at small papers and it didn't seem like they were doing terribly exciting things. They were just dutifully reporting the goings-on of, you know, local city councils. But there was something about NPR, which I didn't listen to until uh, after I graduated from college. I didn't even know it existed, I don't think. There was something about the raucous nature of sports radio or the interesting nature of the interviews I was hearing on NPR that to me represented something like nonfiction plus creativity plus communication slash expression. That's definitely something I should do. Mike started out as an intern at his local public radio station, WNYC, and quickly found out that working in radio was exactly where he was supposed to be. My first full-time job was with a show called On the Media, which was hosted by a guy named Alex Jones. Okay, not that Alex Jones. Alex Jones, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who won a Pulitzer for writing about the New York Times. So back then, uh, we were we were covering media in an interesting way. I thought it was an interesting topic, and there just wasn't the crush of media coverage. I liked the subject matter, and I liked the fact that I wasn't just producing and, and writing questions or researching for someone else. Pretty soon, I was encouraged to go on air and do reports, and so I would get a slot here and there, and then a slot every week. And eventually I became a producer at large, and that was great. That was they're, they're great people to work with, and it was a fun show to work on, a fun topic. One of the first kind of big assignments I got, John F. Kennedy Jr.'s plane crashed. The producer of that show called me up, and he said, what are you doing? I'm like, he said, John F. Kennedy's plane crashed. We need you to get over there. Where's there? I don't know. It crashed somewhere in Long Island Sound. And then we realized that the, much of the action is going to be in Hyannisport. So I take a ferry across to Hyannisport. I mean, this is just spur of the moment, rent a car, drive out there, take a ferry, drive to the Kennedy compound, do a story about at least the scene at the Kennedy compound. I did nothing to book a hotel. I did nothing about logistics. I just jumped in a car and went. By the night and through the next day, I was, I think I worked through the night. So I was driving back over one of the bridges there up in Cape Cod. And I, I, I pulled onto a park, a public park, and there was a picnic table. And I lay down on the picnic table and I fell asleep for two hours. And when I woke up, I said, this is the physically worst I have ever felt in my life. And I said, that's journalism. (laughs) When we come back from the break, Mike comes across a book that helps solidify his worldview and influences the way he approaches his work as a reporter. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Mike Pesca had been steadily working on media stories for radio, 
when he started a new job on an NPR show called Day to Day. His assignment was report on, well, everything. And so he found himself paying a lot of attention to book reviews, regularly checking The Atlantic, The New Yorker, and The New York Times Book Review. And one book that was getting a lot of attention at that time stood out to him, The Progress Paradox by Greg Easterbrook. The Progress Paradox talks about the world as it is now or as it was then. It's about a 14-year-old book at this point. And it makes a couple points. One, things are a lot better than they're given credit for. And the way it does this, I think, through the details are really convincing and compelling and fabulous. Things are a lot better than people think. This confirmed a lot of feelings I had or thoughts I had, but he fleshed it out in a great way. And the second thing it does, it asserts that not only are things better, but people really don't give a credit. And he proves how pessimistic people are. And in survey data and, you know, psychological data, how people look at the world as a glass half empty place. That's the cover of the book. It's a half empty glass of water. I read the title of the book. I immediately gleaned what he was talking about. If I had any question, the subtitle, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse, I said to myself, yes, I do think that happens. And then I started reading reviews of the book and I said, ooh, this seems to be the sort of book that I'm interested in. And um, I should also say that uh, what, what really popped out at me was not, you know, general trends about growing GDP. It was more the specifics such as the fact that, you know, he writes about how whole states like Florida couldn't even exist without air conditioning, and yet no one walks around saying, thank God for air conditioning, it made Florida possible. But maybe we should. Another example of that, acid rain. It had a very horrifying sounding name, and you can accompany it with visuals of, uh, you know, things that have been rotted a little bit by the so-called acid rain. And acid rain was a problem. The rain was acidic because of pollution. And it was really reported like this is not only going to kill all these fish in a lake, probably we're all going to die from acid rain. And it wasn't hype. It wasn't exactly irresponsible. If nothing was done, we would all suffer consequences of acid rain. This has been the story of humanity up until now, but the story of humanity all the time as there were problems is thinking that this trend would at this moment stop, that we're definitely going to have a nuclear war, we're definitely going to have acid rain kill us, but the thing is something was done, not because something's always done, but because quite often human ingenuity looks at the problems of the day and solves them. And for Mike... Reading Easterbrook's book not only confirmed much of what he already believed about the world, but it also made him think differently about his own work. I thought he wrapped it up well. After reading it, I said to myself, yeah, this is not only, this is not only a good book in the specifics and the execution, this is the sort of work of nonfiction that speaks to almost every other work of nonfiction. What this book did was it gave me a sort of uh, a ballast or uh, a master script to deal with why this keeps happening, why we ignore progress that's going on, why it's deemed less newsworthy, why you've never read a story, I'm going to assume most people have never read a story on how we conquered acid rain. 
So there's 10,000 stories about acid rain and the problem, and there's not one story about, hey, remember acid rain? Was that really a thing? Here's what we did to beat it. And so I started looking more for looking a little more askance at the stories that were this horrible thing that's going to kill us and more for, you know, the interesting wrinkle of a story that kind of explains the world outside of this paradigm of intractable problem. And even years after reading The Progress Paradox, Mike still believes in its message. 2004 is a good time to write a book about how good things are because things are pretty good in 2004. So, you know, if you write a book at the uh, peak or the, you know, near the peak of the good times, it's easier to say times are good and people don't realize it. However, he did, Easterbrook did come out with a book this last year that really shows all the trend lines in general are improving. Barack Obama used to argue this all the time. There's never been a better time to be a person on this planet. There's never been a better time to be a randomly born person on this planet. Or, by the way, he would say, there's never been a better time to be a randomly born person in America. And maybe during the Barack Obama administration that was true. And maybe that's less true in the last couple years. Or maybe like Easterbrook says, it just doesn't feel true because it's never really felt true. And when the news of the day dips towards the depressing, that's what Mike reminds himself. Most of the time, we trend towards progress. And in some cases, we believe that. Most of the people who are really worried about the state of our democracy today, and you should be worried, and you shouldn't put your head in the ground. And by the way, if we don't do anything, just like if we didn't do anything about acid rain, good things won't happen. So it's concerned people like you who are active and worried about the world, who are making it a better place. But most of those kind of people will believe things like, you know, the arc of history bends towards justice. And it also bends towards progress. And it's not always such a slow arc in your lifetime. I mean, the book starts with saying, what if your great grandparents came back to America today? What would they think? They would find it a bountiful wonderland, essentially. I mean, no, no material uh, shortages. I mean, that alone. And a state like Florida, which can be air conditioned. Whenever I express this philosophy to people, they very frequently jump to, well, you're just going to sit back and think that good things will happen? Absolutely not. I don't think that. Easterbrook doesn't think that. I don't think the people who are worried about the progress of the world think that anyone should sit back. The point is, we as as a people, as a species, don't sit back. So lean in, don't sit back. But absolutely believe that things are possible. I, don't, I think it's self-defeating and inaccurate to think that these problems can't be solved and that good things are not only impossible, but actually haven't been the rule rather than the exception. But That's Another Story is produced by Katie Ferguson with editing help from Alyssa Martino, Alex Abnos, and Becky Celestina. Music for this episode was by Alex Abnos. Thanks to Mike Pesca, Mary Wilson, and Pierre Bienname. If you'd like to learn more about the books we mentioned in this week's episode, you can find out more in our show notes. If you've been enjoying the show, please be sure to rate and review on iTunes. It really helps others discover the program. And subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 
If there's a book that changed your life, we want to hear about it. Send us an email at anotherstory@macmillan.com. We'll be back with our next episode in two weeks. I'm Will Schwalbe. Thanks so much for listening.